It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com, Doug Marie, Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams. Our friend David Anderson's doing a video. I always have to shout out David. You gotta see the podcast is great. I mean, it's so good. It really is so good. I mean, come on. You guys listen to it. It's so good. Gotta, gotta watch the tape. But David Anderson also now is breaking down as we're breaking down plays like this. He's doing like a video that encapsulates like the heart of the play as it's described by Scott or Ellis with like the coaches cut up. And we're putting that up at Cleveland.com and on our Cleveland Browns YouTube channel from Cleveland.com. And it really brings it all together. You guys got to go find that too. This is good while you're running, when you get home or you're driving. When you get home, then take six or seven minutes and go find that. Anyway, we're doing plays. That's what we do in the offseason here on Gotta Watch the Tape every Thursday in the Orange and Brown Talk feed. We've done a Miles Garrett strip sack. We've got an Odell Beckham big play. And now Scott Pasco is breaking down 13 personnel. There's a particular play that happened. There's a big, exciting play. We're not going to do 13 personnel with like, oh, a little tight end swing pass to Harrison Bryant for four yards. Let's spend an hour on it. We wouldn't do that to you. Ellis might. Ellis might. Now I was, I was, I was going to say we could do it, but we won't. We won't. Watch Hooper run this out. Oh, it's seven yards of magic. That's not how we do it here. I'm drooling. I'm drooling. So it's 13 personnel that leads to a big play. Again, it's a play from this 2020 Brown season that you can celebrate, but also learn something from and what it means for the Browns in 2021. Scott did it two weeks ago. Ellis did it last week. I'm sure not doing it. That means we're back to Scott. Can you imagine me breaking down a play that I had to pick and analyze? (laughs) We should do it. I was going to say maybe just once. Oh, man, we'll do that at the end for a blooper reel. Woo, I'm glad my face is all red from thinking about me breaking down film. All right, Scott Pats goes, diving in on 13 personnel. We just love you guys being a part of this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We're having a good time. Catch every other Orange and Brown talk during the week. Great stuff. It's Bark Week. Bark Week, we had a, we had a staff meeting. We came up with Bark Week. We're doing... Little weeks where we focus on a player. It's Miles Garrett week right now as you listen to this. Now, we already did a Miles Garrett play, so it's not we're not doing Miles Garrett here. But lots of other Miles Garrett content on the podcasts at cleveland.com slash Browns. But this is DPJ time. SP, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, so we want to talk about 13 personnel. And I picked the Donovan Peoples-Jones TD, which I'm going to use DPJ from here on out because I'm, I'm just tired of saying his whole name. But I picked this one because it's a play that I'm sure most Browns fans are going to remember. And as far as 13 personnel goes, just to recap, I mean, if you listen to this podcast all season, I'm sure you know what it is. But if you're new, 
we'll just go over it real quick. 13 personnel, one running back, three tight ends on the field. That's where you get the 13 from. Uh, and on this play, the one receiver is DPJ. The tight ends are the usual suspects, Austin Hooper, Harrison Bryant, and David Njoku. The Browns used this formation nine times against the Titans, ran six times out of it, and threw it three times. <clears throat> Baker was two, or th- two of three on those passes, with this being the one touchdown. The one incompletion, by the way, was a dropped pass by DPJ inside the five-yard line on the Browns' opening drive, which is another play I'm sure every Browns fan remembers. That play was out of empty backfield. In the second quarter, they came back to 13 personnel with a totally different look. It's first and 10 at the Browns' 25-yard line. They led 17-7 to early in the second quarter, and as you probably remember, the Browns had raced out to a 17-0 lead in this game. They included a crazy touchdown pass to Kendall Lamb. Titans finally answered with an explosive four-play drive, and now the Browns are in danger of losing momentum. And that's when they struck with this, which was their longest play of the season. When the Browns broke the huddle on this play, Peoples-Jones goes to the left side. Austin Hooper goes to the right side. But before everybody gets set, Baker kind of calls to both of them and has them motion to two opposite sides of the field. DPJ goes over to the right. Hooper actually goes into the backfield. He's in front of Kareem Hunt. And he's just jogging. DPJ is just jogging. It's like he's, he's jogging so much. It's like, it almost feels like it doesn't count as motion. But yet, I wonder if it's not the most important part of the play, which I have a question about. Again, I have questions. I don't have answers. But it, it is remarkable. It's not like motion, like he goes in motion. It's like, do, 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 almost like, oops, I went to the wrong side. Let me get to the other side, which just might be tricky by DPJ. Yeah, we talked about this actually before we came on. Were they trying to get DPJ set up against a different cornerback? That's something I hadn't really considered until you brought that up. Uh, he he leaves Malcolm Butler on the left, who is the Titans' best coverage corner, and he goes over to Breland on the other side, who probably their second best coverage corner. Now the Titans were not great on defense, but there is a little bit of a difference there, and perhaps they thought that it was a better situation with DPJ on the right. Uh, against Breland as opposed to Butler, that's something to consider. So so let's ask, before we describe this motion, there's like so many parts to this motion, but I want to ask Ellis this. Ellis, that idea that if you come out, because there's only one receiver, it's three tight ends, there's only one receiver, so there's only one corner is going to be matched up with the receiver. If you line people's Jones up on a side and the corner on that side is their best corner, could you can you just flip the play and say, okay, bring people's Jones over because we want this on this corner and that if they would have gotten the matchup they wanted initially, they wouldn't have motioned because as we get to this play, which by the way, works very well, the corner being terrible at his job is a very important part of this play. So the guy who winds up matched up on DPJ is not incidental to what happens here. Ellis, is there purpose to this? Are they looking for a matchup here or why does this little jog motion take place to start this play you guys we got to be careful we could talk about everything that happens before the snap of this play for probably an entire pod and we could just make this a two-parter real quick you know should we commit to that right now knowing us because i am just fascinated with this before logging onto the pod i was like you know what i don't need to pull up this play i have memorized this play it is just one of the best of all season and i'm so glad i pulled it up because now we're talking about something I wasn't even considering, something I hadn't wrote about when this play happened. But I can answer your question rather quickly. First, I cannot dispute that it, they're ch- chasing matchups. Like, even if they aren't, you can make the case that they it, they did and it worked out. Though I, I think everything happens for a reason on this play. Uh, 
they're chasing that matchup. But the point is, and the most important reason for this is, I, I think simply it's just a shorter throw for Baker Mayfield. Throwing to the sideline rather than throwing to the field, it, it, it just less margin for error. Uh, they may have liked their protection too going to that side. You know, you, you've got a tight end uh, on that side rather than having it would be Hooper, I believe, over there, and then you're allowing Njoku uh, to go into the flats. So for protection reasons, and I think just a shorter throw on top of the matchup, everything's happening for a reason on this play. Okay, so this is the first of five motions before we get to the snap, before we get to the play, and we're 11 minutes in. Good luck, Scott. Go ahead. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs> All right, so when we left, left, last left our heroes, uh, Hooper was in the backfield. Peoples-Jones is out on the right. Uh, Hooper then motions back to his original spot, and Harrison Bryant falls back into the backfield. So you have, you have the line kind of bookended by Nujoku on the left, and Hooper on the right, you have Donovan Peoples-Jones out wide, and again, Bryant in the backfield. So they finally snap the ball at this point, and everything is motioning to the left. It's play action. Kareem Hunt fakes getting the hand up to the left. Harrison Bryant just takes out his man, uh, dives into the legs, and just crushes his block. Austin Hooper, not so much. He basically whiffs, and I'm telling you, if Peoples-Jones is not open, and if Baker has to look for his second read on this play – he might be running because of Hooper's uh, poor block on this play, but everything kind of works out in that respect. When everybody motioned, though, Baker could see that nobody was going with Peoples-Jones over to the other side. It was zone. Also, all the tight ends on the field and the tight formation had the entire defense pulled up into the box, so there was only one safety back, and he was only 11, 12 yards off the ball at best, so Baker knew he had Peoples-Jones one-on-one and that there probably wasn't going to be any safety help on this play anyways. So, like I said, the Browns use play action. Just about everybody bites on this. DPJ loses his defender on the double move, and then Baker makes, makes the easy throw for the touchdown. And the defense bites so much on this play that Nujoku, who releases off the line at the snap, is basically uncovered on a crossing route. So if DPJ isn't open, Baker has a secondary option, which would have been a huge gain because, again, nobody is with Nujoku. He, he would have DPJ in front of him blocking the only defender left. Um, so both options were really good here for Baker. And other, really, other than Hunt releasing in the flat, those are the only two guys running routes in this play. So this is one of two passing touchdowns for Baker out of 13 personnel this season. And clearly, I mean, it was one of the most important plays of the season because of the matchup, the hype of this matchup for the Browns and the, the moment that it came in the game when they were able to snatch back the momentum. So you're, you're talking about Hooper does not get his block here, but like the play action blocks the end on this play because he beats right. Hooper. And as you said, like beats him and then hesitates. He stops his pass rush because he thinks Hunt has the ball. So I guess it's one of those things. You can either have a player block a, pl- a guy or you could have a play block a guy. But also the motion is blocking people here. There are four separate parts to this motion. This is what Ellis falls asleep to at night. Instead of counting sheep, he counts pre-snap motion and it just soothes his soul. 
I think by the time this ball is snapped, Ellis, I don't think the Titans defenders know what they are seeing because they've had two tight ends who have been fullbacks at various times. They have a running back who's going to do play action and leak out. In Joku, as Scott said, also winds up wide open. While there's no help on People's Jones, there are a bunch of Titans guys who wind up doing kind of nothing on this play, Ellis. And I think it's because they don't know what they're looking at because there were four separate parts of the motion before the ball was snapped. I'm going to do my best to explain this in the most simple way possible, but quite frankly, this is one of the most complex pre-snap plays that the Browns had all season. And it is a testament and really should be the, the shining example of how Kevin Stefanski trained Baker Mayfield this season to do all his hard work pre-snap. So life was easy for him post-snap. The, what makes motion so challenging for a defense, aside from allowing the offense to figure out if it's man or zone, is it changes all their rules. Like just from the start of the play, when uh, Austin Hooper goes from a fullback in the backfield to an on-the-line tight end, you can see the Titans all communicating with each other. He, Though this is zone coverage, it changes who the assignments are to that player. And then you take another tight end off the line and put him in the backfield again changing the rules and like you said Doug by the time the ball is snapped I mean Scott highlighted how David Njoku's wide open they the Titans don't even have a flat defender to that side I mean this is just in a I don't know what's better is the is the offensive execution better or is the defensive the lack of execution so abysmal that it's just a, a, a wasted rep for the Titans the answer is the offense because they put him, them in this situation but there are blown coverages all over the field and that's a shining example, a prime example of why the Titans just had no idea what they were doing. And it's all because of the pre-snap motion, confusing the rules. All right. You know what? Let's take a quick break. We got to settle ourselves again. Oh, that was, that was some pre-snap motion. I need a, I need a glass of water. We'll be right back. on got to watch the tape. All right. So I hope go find it now. Just go take a little break. Pause us. Go find the motion. Enjoy the motion. It's the motion. It's not the size of the tight end. It's the motion in the backfield, as they say. Scott. They say that? (laughs) I've heard Kevin Stefanski say that on a Zoom one time. Okay. So now the part, so the motion is great, but it's motion with all these tight ends. Why, why is it that what is it about 13 personnel that is important to this play and important to this Browns offense in 2020? Right. Why use 13 personnel? You can go heavy in run formation. You can stack the line one way or the other. You have all these tight ends on the field. We're typically going to be better at blocking close to the line than your receivers are. You know, somebody like Jarvis Landry is a good blocker, but he's a good blocker when he's blocking, you know, cornerbacks. And also you create play action situations, which we just saw in this play. Um, You have lots of options for motion around the line. If you have tight ends who excel catching the ball, as the Browns do, this also creates big advantages. You saw David Njoku running free along the the crossing route there. If he catches that, that's a huge gain. So the formation really makes for – it's really good for a run-heavy team and a play action-heavy team, and the Browns are both of those. And they actually use this personnel third most – behind 11 and 12. But we're talking about it today because the Browns actually led the NFL in use of 13 personnel in 2020. They used it 14% of the time. 
which was a total of 139 plays in the regular season. The Giants are the only other team to even reach 100 plays and 13 personnel, and they had exactly 20. Uh, the Titans were third at 95, which makes sense because they're kind of built very similarly. But the Browns were clearly out in front, kind of leading the charge with this formation. And this was a case – this actually wasn't the case – when Stefanski was with the Vikings in 2019, the Vikings were tied for third in usage rate and 13 personnel when he was calling plays, but it was only 7%. They ran 72 plays total. So that wasn't even half of what the Browns did this past season. They actually had more than 72 plays out of 13 personnel just over the second half of the season this year. But this is where the Browns desire to put Baker in a position to succeed comes up because you might remember owner Jimmy Haslam talking about that after he fired Freddie Kitchens. Haslam was asked about the team possibly returning to an analytics or data-driven approach with the next head coach. And he said, the key to all this is making decisions based on facts. That if Baker is better out of a certain formation or a certain play, we're going to try to put him in position where he can be successful. That is all analytics is. It is using data to help make better decisions. Well, here's what the data showed about Baker and 13 personnel in 2018. And that was the year the Browns, Fired Hugh Jackson in offense quarter, Todd Haley halfway through the season. Freddie takes over this play caller. Baker was awesome in 13 personnel that year. The Browns ran it more than any other team, 14%, just like this season. The Browns didn't have as much success running it out of 13, but Baker was second in the NFL with 29 pass attempts out of it, and he completed 69% of those passes. He also averaged 11.1 yards per attempt, 13 air yards per attempt, so he was throwing it downfield. Then in 2019, all that went away. Baker had just 11 dropbacks in 13 personnel. The Browns used it just 3% of the time. Baker was still good when they did use it. He was 7 of 11, 58 yards, two touchdowns. But Kitchen's offense, his new offense, didn't build off what had worked so well the year before. So then enters Kevin Stefanski, and they're back to running it, or they're back to running 13 personnel more than any other team in the NFL. I don't know what Kevin Stefanski said in his interview with the Haslams, but I'm betting that putting Baker in positions to succeed probably came up. We know play action came up, maybe 13 personnel came up, but that's basically what happened this season. It was the coach recognizing what the quarterback does well and making sure that they put the quarterback in position to do those things. Okay. Okay. Ellis, Ellis, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that you agree with everything Scott just said about 13 personnel. No diggity, no doubt. So my question then about it is this. It makes sense that Kevin Stefanski would lean into this because of Baker's success. But also then they matched the roster to this, that they had a first-round tight end in David Njoku, who had not fully developed but is still a skilled football player. They spend money on Austin Hooper and free agency, and they draft Harrison Bryant. One of the things that I'm curious about in relation for both you guys on this, they leaned into personnel and they matched the roster to it. Do you have to have good tight ends to run 13 personnel or does like, is this one of those things where like 13 works anyway, no matter what, or like, is this the fact that they have guys they trusted? How important was it? Because that then builds to like, as we look to the future, is this just, if they're going to do this, Scott, right. And Ellis, like, do they have to have three quite good tight ends on this roster as long as they have Baker Mayfield and Kevin Stefanski because you can't just do 13 with Steven Carlson. No offense to Steven Carlson, who's their fourth tight end. Do they have to have three guys at this level to pull this off? 
It's a wonderful question, Doug, and the answer is absolutely yes. When you look at the Browns' tight ends, I like to think of them like a basketball team. You know, Austin Hooper's your all-around, you know, you'd like him to be a little better at the point of attack on blocking, but he can get in and, and, and do the dirty work. You got David Njoku as your unicorn-like guy who improves as a blocker, is electric with the ball in his hands when he gets the opportunity, and and just the upside guy. And then you have Harrison Bryant as your point guard, shooting guard style. He, he can act like he's going to get in there and block, but essentially he's a he's a slot receiver. He's, he can run those option routes and, and get in the middle and hook up and, and do the things that scream this is a pass if he were the only tight end on the field or in your number two, as we saw the Browns had to do sometimes with injuries. We should have known early in the season that David Njoku was not getting traded. You know, when he made that trade request, we should have laughed it off and we, we'd spent a lot of time and, and took it seriously as we should have. But this offense doesn't function without three – B to B plus tight ends and, and they need to be here. So if David Njoku isn't in the 2021 plans for the Browns, expect them to draft another guy. And it can't be another guy like Harrison Bryant, because then you become too obvious in your situational play calling. You're not going to ask Harrison Bryant and a rookie to go, you know, block defensive tackles. David Njoku and Austin Hooper just have the, the, the natural adult strength to go take those type of uh, blocks on. So Njoku, though he's not happy with his numbers is actually a really important part of this offense and replacing him will be a challenge just because of what veteran tight ends are able to do in in terms of being versatile compared to coming in as a rookie. So, so there's two things I want to ask you about this, Scott. One is in terms of like roster building and spending money and spending draft capital and that kind of thing. On one hand, like it's like, all right, well, you said they ran 13 personnel 14% of the time, right? Which is a lot. It's the most in the league, but it's still 86% of the time they're not in it, right? So what do you think is the right balance of how much you have to invest in these tight ends? And I want to also then touch on a point that, I don't know if I was surprised by it, but I was intrigued by it. When we did our roundtable podcast a couple weeks ago, and we talked about the most disappointing Brown for this season. And Mary Kay said Austin Hooper. And I think if you look at numbers and sort of like individual play, I mean, clearly she has a point there, right? But another point of this is like, if you didn't sign a tight end, and maybe you could have signed somebody for less money, you wouldn't have been able to do what you did here. So how much of Austin Hooper's value comes from, listen, he's an established veteran in the league who knows how to play the position. And the fact that he allows them to run this formation, which Baker's good at and makes them successful. There's value in that. Even if his numbers aren't as good, right. Or even if he drops some key balls, like Scott, just what's your view on tight end investment as it relates to wanting to run this package. Well, you're right that they only ran this formation 14% of the time, but you have to add it in with all the other formations they run with multiple tight ends, right? They, I think it was 26%. They ran 12 personnel with two tight ends on the field. You know, they also ran 22 personnel, a certain percentage. If you take all of them put together, you, you have multiple tight ends on the field more than, than you don't. So you kind of have to have a bigger, I guess, bigger picture look at it. If you want to kind of judge the value of multiple tight ends. As for Hooper, um, when he was out, uh, mid-season, he had the appendectomy. He missed those two games. The Browns still used 
this formation. They, they ended up targeting Njoku and Bryant like five times over two games, uh, which is about the, the pace, I guess, they were at during the season. Uh, Stephen Carlson wasn't really a factor uh, in the passing game out of that formation over those two games. So having three is better, although David Njoku only had one catch, five targets out of 13 personnel. So it was, it was very top-heavy on Bryant and Hooper. And just overall, target-wise, over you know the course of the season, obviously it was very top-heavy in that respect. But I think this team has has to put more value on tight ends, just from the fact that even beyond this one formation, they are on the field more than they're not, and they are asked to do a lot more than a lot of tight ends on other teams. So the value is definitely there, even if, and it's a good argument, Hooper's probably making more money than he's worth the Browns still might have a different idea of what that worth costs to them. I do think, I think there's your like sort of individual worth and then your worth to what the team wants to do, which is kind of doesn't all, isn't always the same thing. And sometimes it's like, well, could they have gotten a guy for a couple million less to do a similar thing? It's like, well, maybe, but like we'll spend the extra couple million a year for the certainty of like, we have three tight ends. We believe in right. That that's we, if we don't believe in three tight ends, we, we can't do what we want to do and what Baker is good at. Okay. The interesting thing about 13 personnel is then what you do out of it, because right. I think Ellis, you've maybe said this over times. Both of you guys have said this. Some of the best stuff Stefanski likes to do is throw out of run formations, run out of pass formations, do the opposite of what you think the defense is going to do. But Scott, you also then have to sometimes run out of 13, right? You can't line up and then just throw bombs every time you have three tight ends on the field. So what's, what was their balance? How did they, how, how were they at it in run versus pass out of this formation? It was kind of a 60, 40 balance, which is, pretty much what, what it was when Freddie Kitchens was using it uh, or when the Browns were using it a lot in 2018, similar to what Stefanski did in Minnesota. But this is kind of where our story takes a turn, I guess. When the Browns passed out of 13 personnel this past season, Baker did leave the NF- lead the NFL in dropbacks out of 13. He had 55. Only two quarterbacks were within 20 of them, Derek Carr and, and Ryan Tannehill. Overall, he was 28 of 49. 446 yards, two touchdowns, one pick, nine yards per attempt, 11 air yards. He was sacked four times. So right off the bat, the thing that jumps out there is the completion percentage. He completed only 57% throwing out of 13 personnel, and that's down a lot from 2018 when he completed 69%. What if we break it down by first half and second half of the season? We know Baker really played well over the second half of the season. In the first half, he completed 61%, uh, 18 attempts. No touchdowns, one pick, no sacks. The Browns had a 59% success rate on those plays. And success rate is basically taking the down and distance into account on every play. The guidelines are uh, you gain 40% uh, of yards to go on first down, 60% on second down, 100% on third or fourth down. So no touchdowns isn't great, but overall it's a good completion percentage, 59%, and a decent success rate. So that wasn't bad over the first half of the season. The second half, the Browns really ramped up. 13 personnel. They used it almost twice as often. Baker was 17 of 31. So that's only 54% completion percentage. That's down quite a bit from the first half. Two touchdowns, no interceptions. He was sacked four times. The success rate was 50% over the second half of the season. So that went down too. So when they were passing out of 13 personnel, the improvement doesn't show up like it did with Baker overall over the second half of the season. 
And without really diving into every individual play over the first half, it's hard to decipher why that was. My guess is the opponents and defenses they were facing early in the season contributed to this a bit, uh, especially when it came to passing. That's my best guess on that. I think you had Ravens in week one, but you also came back and, and played them again. You had fiascos against the Jets. Uh, you had the Giants, which were a pretty good defense. So there were, there were issues over the second half that maybe they didn't have to worry about so much in the first half. As for the people catching the ball, we talked about Hooper and the tight ends. Hooper was second among all NFL players, period, in targets out of 13 personnel. He was only behind the Raiders, Darren Waller, their big tight end. Uh, he caught nine of 11 targets. Bryant was fourth, eight of 10 targets. And like I said, Najoku had one catch on five targets. Baker was much more efficient throwing to tight ends out of this formation, 70% completion percentage. And he only, he only hit on five of 10 targets to wide receivers, but he had the big touchdown there to, to DPJ. Overall, though, the Browns had a 53% success rate passing out of 13 personnel, which is the exact same success rate the Browns had in 2018 out of that grouping. So in that respect, the Browns got back to where they were with Baker doing well. It's just they seem to have a hard time building off it or being consistent uh, this season. So let me ask this. This is a DPJ play. Who is the ideal lone receiver on the Browns roster in a 13 personnel set like this? If you could pick ideally one guy to be out there. Did, did he have to be healthy at the time? No. I mean, is this OBJ territory? Like, is this, is this where he could thrive that, that you set up a situation where, and is that maybe, I don't know. I mean, they didn't have OBJ in the second half. You put OBJ out there. If he draws safety help and has basically taken two guys, now that opens it up for you're not sure which tight end is going out in the route and who's going stand in the block. And if you don't do that, and if you sort of commit more to guys in the box because you're afraid of the run or you're worried about the tight end, now OBJ is doing what Peoples Jones did on this play, which is smoke one-on-one coverage. I just wonder, Ellis, could this be a great use of Odell Beckham Jr. as the lone receiver in these 13 personnel groupings? Without a doubt, I I think this is a a spot OBJ could thrive. But I also think it's on brand for Kevin Stefanski to – do the opposite of what defenses are thinking. Like you said earlier, Doug, you know, he comes out in a heavy and he throws, he comes out and spread motions are running back in and all of a sudden they're running the ball or throwing a screen. If I remember this correctly, Kevin Stefanski said that this play was originally designed for Kaderil Hodge. And this would have been right around the time he was having hamstring issues again. And once again, DPJ just steps in and, and does an excellent job, which I don't think we give that rookie enough praise, not for his body of work in the season. He did drop a touchdown in this game, but just to be able to answer the call when you're not even expecting to play two or three snaps, really just impressive uh, ability to step up and have big moments this season. The reason I like it being Cordero Hodge or DPJ opposed to OBJ, all these, the, a lot of three-letter names and, uh, and middle names going on with this Browns team, or two last names, I should say, is you're playing with the the expectations of defensive backs. You know, like, no DB is going to say this, no defensive coordinator is going to say this, like, we don't take any plays off. But you take a little break or a little sigh of relief when you see a, a six-round rookie out there rather than Odo Beckham Jr. And it would work to the perfection for the Browns. So I think it, it, it would remain on brand that even if o, OBJ is back on this team next year, that they still dial up, you know, one or two deep shots over the course of a four game span 
for some guys you wouldn't expect because Beckham's going to get his volume either way. So I do, but before we sort of, again, get back to what this means in the big picture for the Browns, I do want to address that because the safety there's the single high safety here is like only 11 yards deep. And he comes downhill like a mamma jamma off the snap. I don't exactly see. I'm not sure if he's coming for hunt because he doesn't really take the tight end that slides across. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing, but he's nowhere near Donovan people's Jones. So I don't know. Like, I think maybe that does that go to your point, Ellis, that if it's OBJ, maybe that safety doesn't react that way. Cause he's like, well, I got to help on on Beckham here but Scott there's a part of this too again we talked about there was a lot of guys up at the line of scrimmage who kind of didn't know exactly what they were doing there's no safety help on this play and I still am not exactly sure what that safety was doing but the Browns clearly had him in a pickle oh yeah and I think and I think Ellis is right if, if Beckham's out there maybe it's a different situation uh, he only got two targets out of 13 personnel when he was healthy really they one okay. for seven yards their, their leaders this season was Hodge with three and DPJ with three. Yep. And you remember Beckham obviously wasn't around when they really ramped up the usage of this. So that might've changed over the second half of the season. Maybe he is out there on this play, but yeah, I do think it's, it's clearly something that the defense is thinking differently about because again, it's, it's down on people's Jones and yeah, he made that great catch against the Bengals, but I mean, he doesn't strike fear into the hearts of safeties the way <laughs> And corners the way uh, Odell Beckham Jr. might. So really it's possible that in Stefanski's thinking, part of the appeal of this play is lulling a defense to sleep because not only is it 13 personnel, but they're not really that worried about the one receiver that's out there. And then they hit you that that's not incidental. That's part of the plan that no, we don't want it to be OBJ because we don't want you to help. And that way, if one dumb corner bites on a double move, Ellis, it's game over like it was on this play. It's exactly it. And just watching the tight view of this play, I'm convinced that that high safety number 37 is coming down to play the run in Kareem Hunt. He sees Wyatt Teller pulling. He's thinking power all the way to back power. The Browns really bread and butter as much as we talk about this team being wide zone. Two back power became their best running play, especially with Wyatt Teller pulling. So he's selling out for the run there. And to the notion of Odell Beckham Jr. on this play compared to DPJ, I think it's just a overall philosophy decision by Kevin Stefanski. Like we just talked about Austin Hooper being worth the money or not. Uh, statistically, this team clearly and Kevin Stefanski dating back to his days in Minnesota have no interest in producing a quote unquote, number one tight end. They're going to sprinkle it across. They're going to do the same thing at wide receiver and not just be like, nope, it, it's it's the Odell Beckham Jr. show. You know, being a Minnesota guy, it's it's the Randy ratio that Mike Tice coined. Like, you know, 60% of our balls or whatever it was are going to, to Randy Moss. Kevin Stefanski is too smart for that. He knows that deception, like you said, Doug, lulling a team to sleep and striking when they least expect it is the, the kill shot of a football game. And that's why I think this play works so beautifully. Okay. So, Scott, on, on this 13 personnel, I, I just want to – Maybe you already said it, and I and I didn't catch it. Are they good running out of it? Like when the Browns do run out of thirteen, you have all these blockers, right? You know, I have all these tight ends there. Like, like does it work or does it pull ten defenders down into the box, and then you don't run that well in this formation? It kind of depends on how you want to look at it. Like I said, they, it was kind of a sixty forty split. They ran the ball sixty three percent of the time out of thirteen personnel, and they averaged five yards a carry on eighty eight attempts, and that sounds good. But again, they only had a 48% success rate doing that. So if you want to break it down again by first half and second half of the season, the first half, 
35 attempts, 5.7 yards per carry, 63% success rate. And that's great. Um, they did really well. The second half, again, they ramped it up, 53 attempts, 4.5 yards per carry. So that's down 38% success rate. Right. Mm. So things got worse. And in the playoffs, it got really bad. <laughs> 12 attempts, 1.9 yards per carry. 1.9. 33% success rate out of 13 personnel running it in the playoffs. Not that it worked at all in the playoffs because Baker, he was 2 of 5, no touchdowns, no interceptions, 4.5 yards per attempt, 40% success rate. So running it or, or passing, it didn't really work in the playoffs overall. But running it did not work as well as maybe you would hope or you would think with all the extra blockers you would have on the field, which at this point is like, well, why do they even run 13 personnel at all? But clearly Baker has a history of being successful in it. Stefanski has a history of being successful in it. It's just that it's more towards the passing side than, than clearly the running side. Ellis, how would you describe the Browns three primary tight ends as blockers compared to how they are as receivers? It's a great question. Uh, I already compared Harrison Bryant to a slot receiver. Uh, he Until he puts on some bulk, there's not a defensive end that fears him in this league. It, David Njoku, I think it's a fascinating project with him. Like, I compare it to a guy in basketball who thinks he's a hot shot, three-point shooter, a, a, a high scorer, and then has no interest in playing defense. But really, their skill set is built to be a great defender and still be a reliable scorer. That's David Njoku's frame. Like, yeah, of course he's great with the, the, the ball in his hand. He's really fast, but he's not the most disciplined route runner. He, we know about his hands. He's built to block. He's just a, a specimen of an athlete. And he really embraced that role this season, becoming the best Browns blocking tight end. I, I don't know if that checks out with PFF, but I'm, I'm confident it would. But in, in just on in what I see on tape at the point of attack, David Njoku really impressed me. And then Austin Hooper, again, the all around guy that, again, not an A in either the passing game or the blocking game, but a, a, the veteran that at times can use his, his film study and savviness and blocking angles. And Bill Callahan plays a huge part in this, just in schematically putting them in the right positions and having the right angles. Blocking is so much more uh, angles than it is actual uh, skill set. So I think the Browns have, again, a diverse unit. They've got a really good blocker in Ninjoku. They've got an all-around receiver and, and competent blocker in Hooper. And then they've got their corner three-point shooter I can't get out of the basketball analogies I don't maybe I should go hoop after this but they had their corner three-point shooter and Harrison Bryant to come in and be a slack guy and 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 make those uh catches that you see Jarvis Landry make often so it's a it's a diverse group but again the, the evolution of it and how they because they need it they need that sort of versatility because I think that Scott's onto something when he talks about 13 purse as the season got late into week 17, 16, 17, and into the playoffs, that there might be a little bit of a trend here coming into the next season that, again, I think it's an oversimplification to say, oh, they figured out 13 purse, but there needs to be a, a now an evolution. And if these three tight ends are all back, they've got a diverse enough skill set amongst all three of them to continue to build off this. I have those blocking grades if, if you want them. And unless I'm dead got. wrong, unless I'm dead wrong, then I don't want to hear them, but try me, Scott. <laughs> Hooper is not the best blocker. Uh, Harrison Bryant actually had the highest grade run blocking 62.5, which is 35th in the league last season. Second was Nijoku is 62.3 and Hooper 
Oh, where's Hooper? Hooper came in at 54th, 58.7. Yeah. So it all makes sense. That all great. makes sense. And I and I and I'm I'd be con- I'm confident in that they asked David to be that point of attack run blocker far more than they asked Harrison Bryant, perhaps helping his score a little bit there. We'll take a last quick break here on Gotta Watch the Tape, and then we will come back and spin it forward really hard for 2021. What do the the numbers and the success rates, what do they tell us about what the Browns should do with 13 personnel next season? We'll be right back with Doug, Scott, and Ellis. All right, Scott. So this is interesting, but as as Ellis as Ellis noted, like what you're saying, Scott, is sort of feels like it's leading us toward did people start to figure something out here? So what you are showing us and telling us with 13 personnel, A, what do you think it should mean for the Browns roster in 2021? And does that mean they need to keep David and Joku? And if they don't, what do they have to do instead? And then B, 14% of the time last year, do you want to see it more or less in 2021? Right. So ideally this is where I explained that it's clear this or that should happen in 2021. And like, it's, it's hazy. There's like no aha moment here that says it's clear that, you know, 13 personnel shooter shouldn't factor in the Browns offense by this much. Um, you know, Baker had success in it. Stefanski had success in it. And it made sense, like you said, that they would lean into it and see what they could do. Like passing wise, the holy grail of efficiency is you're chasing here is Kirk Cousins in 2019, 23 of 29 passing out of 13 personnel. They had a 67% success rate in Minnesota with this. So that's what you want. Now Cousins, uh, his air yards out of 13 personnel that year was only 4.3. Baker's this past season, 11.1. Um, now it was also long in 2018, but maybe dialing it back is the step you take going into this season to become a little more efficient. And like we've said, maybe, you know, also adding Odell back into this unlocks better downfield opportunities. Um, you're getting him more opportunities, obviously, than they had this year. Also, the Browns only ran three screens out of 13 personnel, twice to Bryant, once to Kareem Hunt. And I feel like screens is going to be something I'm going to be yelling about all offseason. And 13 personnel just creates multiple options for it because you have all those tight ends on the field. You have people on both sides of the line who could break out for them. Just a lot of potential for doing that. And the Browns were 23rd in the number of screens attempted in 2020 overall. Not just out of this formation, just overall. So there's clearly room to ramp this up. I do think it's important that the Browns have three talented tight ends because they're allowed to do things that other teams aren't. I mean, the fact that they ran this formation more than anybody in the league, clearly they recognize their potential to do a lot of things out of this. And the fact that they don't just have one main guy who can go out, you know, it's not just like Travis Kelsey by himself is the clear main target running routes out of 13 personnel. It's, it's three guys and not that anybody on the Browns is at his level, but you do have three guys who are all capable of making plays out of this. So, I mean, just, just like the offense overall, not just out of this formation, but overall, there are ways that this can evolve and 13 personnel is included in that. And I think having these three guys back is going to be vital to making that work. So maybe the, the throw that Baker actually made here maybe isn't the best example of 13. Maybe this is a little bit of a rare thing. It's like they got a deep shot on a double move because t- the safety didn't help and DPJ burned them. But the route that Njoku ran and was wide open and would have gained about 10 or 12 yards on it. I'm not that interested in 13 personnel that leads to like a three yard out 
you know, it's like, oh, I, what was the point of that? But, but right. I mean, Ellis, that feels like if that's, if they can work maybe a little bit of the middle of the field, get some tight ends down the seam, get some crossing stuff with tight ends or whatever that you get, you put some linebackers and safeties in a bind about, as you said, the rules, who are we supposed to be covering? And now you're hitting because all three of these guys you believe in, I mean, okay, in Joku's hands. Okay. But you believe in at all three of these tight ends. If you, if they get open, they can do a little something. So even like, maybe that's where they can take this step and start hitting some of these 10 and 12 yard gains to tight ends on a more regular basis. I think that's what it's going to come down to is diversifying and just expanding your route tree right now. This team relied on when using play action, a lot of deep overs from guys across the middle, whether it's like David Njoku on this play or, or Jarvis Landry going across the middle. And then they just had double moves on the outside. And that is successful for a season for eight game stretches. But like the data is showing, and the Chiefs game showed beautifully, teams just started passing this stuff off. They, they didn't bite as much on the run fake. Like, all right, fine, run the ball then, like prove it. And then we're not going to fall for, again, the deep over or the, or the double move. And that's where I think, like, I think if the Browns draft a tight end this year, I'm going to go on the record and say that every year Kevin Stefanski is the making decisions for the Browns. They're just going to draft a tight end because I think that he is going to become or that would show him his fascination, dedication, and understanding that getting an elite athlete at that position completely changes and perhaps unlocks this offense. Like there's only so much you can ask Austin Hooper to do. There's only so much you can ask David Njoku to do because of his uh, unreliable receiving skills. Like he'll make a spectacular vertical play and then you're inconsistent in other areas. And then we, we, know, we already kind of know what Harrison Bryant's trajectory is going to be in this league if they find just a, a guy like Travis Kelsey or George Kittle, both mid-round picks, Darren Waller is uh, was on an undrafted wide receiver, I believe. I mean, that is about if you are just going to have an eye for talent at that position, and I believe Kevin Fancy is one of those guys, that's how this offense can get even scarier. Because right now, again, they've got talent, but they don't have – the elite guy. And when you rely on tight ends this often, it, it's a no brainer that you'd like the elite guy, right? You know, you're not going to under, this isn't a Cliff Kingsbury Arizona Cardinals offense where they ignore the, the tight end. This Kevin Stefanski is going to keep looking for that diamond in the rough. And in, it, until he finds it, I bet they keep bringing in talent. So Scott, to kind of pull this all together in the end, I think, I mean, the 13 personnel is a great example of it. And the stats of they used it more than anybody is the proof, but to me, it's a little bit of the bigger picture that I think maybe Browns fans just have to prepare themselves for. And I think they already know it, but that going forward, the Browns are just going to maybe go about things a little differently than other teams do, which means they might spend money at a couple different places than other teams. They might spend draft picks at a couple different places. It all leads to, you know, which is sort of an overarching discussion of like paying the money they're paying right now for two big time receivers like they are. Is that really where they're going to wind up? when you talk about how they prioritize things, but that Scott, would you imagine that under Kevin Stefanski, are we going to continue to see things along the lines of, Hey, they use 13 personnel more than anybody in the league. Now, maybe it's not that specifically because maybe they'll make an adjustment off that, but that they generally just will have a little different plan of attack that they aren't looking like everybody else. When you go to the deep stats on this. Well, I think in a year or two, everybody, 
more teams could look like the Browns, you know, and then the Niners and the, and the Ravens and the Titans. And I think, you know, the trend has been going that way. More and more teams are running this kind of offense. So, but for right now, yeah, I mean, they're part of that group that's kind of leading, leading the charge uh, with doing things this way. And as far as like, I'm glad you mentioned the wide receivers there, like I building their team and how they put this together to play this offense it's easier to justify paying Austin Hooper what he's making than it is to pay two wide receivers what Beckham and Landry are making in this offense. And I think, you know, if they, if, if they come back next season and, and one or both of those guys isn't in the wide receiver room, that wouldn't be as surprising to me as, is you know, something happening with, with a Hooper, Hooper kind of contract. That just makes more sense to me, knowing what we know and seeing what we've seen this last season and how much they use tight ends. It just, there's more value there. Not that I'm saying that the Browns are going to get rid of Beckham, but or or even Landry, even though you know they're they're making out in terms of dead cap if they get rid of Landry, it just makes more sense. And it is. It's like it just this might be the way they want to play. It might make sense to pay three tight ends. It might make sense to pay two top end running backs, and it maybe won't make as much sense to pay two top end receivers because as we started off, this play is a deep ball touchdown to a sixth round rookie. Yep. And it's not only that by happenstance, it's practically that by the plan because they have an investment in the offensive line and the tight ends. They have their backup running back in the game who once upon a time led the NFL in rushing and all that works to free up the sixth round rookie who makes the big play. And it is, it is fascinating to watch Kevin Stefanski make these decisions. And then Andrew Barry make the decisions to give Kevin Stefanski the best pieces for him and this offense, which might not always exactly match up with what we want or what fans want, but it's the winning formula. And it's a a Stefanski formula that I think we're all really getting our hands around here. We kind of know what this guy wants to do, but bottom line, and we'll get out of here on this Ellis. Also, we know what Kevin Stefanski wants to do, But now in 2021, he also must be prepared to adjust off what he wants to do because by the time they got to the Chiefs, this 13 personnel stuff wasn't fooling anybody. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's, again, they're not playing football for a really long time, but those first four games to me are going to be really telling of how Kevin Stefanski spent his offseason. If the Browns come out and look similar and they pull a page out of the Chiefs book of not adjusting your game plan – like the Chiefs did in the Super Bowl, like they lost, the Chiefs lost that game because they just simply didn't switch anything up, then it's going to be a, a, love, a tough learning curve for Kevin Zafanski. But he hasn't shown any reason to think that's what's going to happen. And instead, he's going to continue, I believe, to scheme players open. And if anyone wants to know what scheming a player open looks like, start this podcast over and go watch this play. They should have it in Canton under schematic brilliance and just run this play on a reel because it is flawless from start to finish. You've got David Njoku open underneath. You've got a 75 yard touchdown open deep and it all happened because of scheme and pre-snap and that's Kevin's fancy's MO and I don't see why that's going to change. All right. That's like 50 minutes on one play. It's like how we, uh, it's what we like to do here on got to watch the tape. We hope you join us every Thursday. We hope you're listening to every version of the orange and Brown talk in this podcast feed, spectacular Browns coverage. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash Browns where you'll find Ellis. You'll find Scott. You'll find Mary Kay. You'll find Dan. You'll find Terry Pluto. You'll find Tim Bielek checking in on draft stuff. Um, it's fun. It's, it's a fun off season. We are glad that you guys are a part of it next week. We'll be back. 
Ellis picking the play again for next Thursday's got to watch the tape for now on behalf of Ellis and Scott. I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on got to watch the tape.